Our healthcare system is essentially a sick care system. It's a system that actually provides reasonably good medical care if you can afford it. That is to say, if you have the right insurance. And most of the time, we provide a lot of that care after people are having acute problem. You're listening to A Healthier Future, where we explore big ideas for transforming and improving the future of health, showcasing the most innovative solutions and best practices today. On this episode, I'm speaking with Ken Frazier, the executive chairman and former CEO of global pharmaceutical company Merck. Under Ken's leadership, Merck developed some of the world's most important and impactful medicines and vaccines. Growing up as a black man in America, Ken overcame inequities in education and healthcare to become one of the world's most influential people, improving access to medicine and quality healthcare for all, regardless of socioeconomic status. In today's episode, Ken and I discuss the importance of access to quality medical care and how responsible innovation with an emphasis on equity can help us shape the future of healthcare. I'm Mark Harrison, and together we're building a healthier future. Ken, the most current thing for you is this incredibly interesting move over to General Catalyst. And I wonder if you might explain to folks some of your thoughts around how you want to make meaning through this move. And I know you are passionate about addressing inequities and disparities in healthcare in particular. And if you might share with us if that's part of this move, how it ties in. So first of all, Mark, thanks for having me here. I've always looked up to you as one of the real leaders in healthcare around innovation and access and equity. What really drove me to want to work with General Catalyst, and I'm very excited by the opportunity to be chairman of their health assurances initiatives. You know, I spent 30 years here, and Merck has as a fundamental principle the idea that through scientific excellence, we can bring important new products to market, medicines and vaccines largely. But we also believe, importantly, that those medicines don't do people any good unless they have access to them. And so when I first met with the General Catalyst people, there are a couple of things that they were really committed to that really struck me. First of all is this concept around responsible innovation. So we hear a lot about the innovator mentality in Silicon Valley, for example, which is move fast, break things, fail fast, disrupt things. But we don't always hear about moral or ethical component to that. And this idea of responsible innovation, I think, applies across our society, but it applies particularly in medicine. As the CEO of Merck, unlike you and your physician colleagues at Intermountain, I never had to take the Hippocratic Oath. But the work that I do, frankly, is subject to the same ethical norms that physicians are. We have to make sure that the work that we do puts patients first, and a big part of that is to ensure that patients have access to the right kinds of medicines and treatments. And when I talked to General Catalyst, they were committed to a few fundamental things. So first of all, we know that our healthcare system is essentially a sick care system. It's a system that actually provides reasonably good medical care if you can afford it. That is to say, if you have the right insurance. And most of the time, we provide a lot of that care after people are have an acute problem, they are really sick and they need an intervention. So the idea that we wanted to have a much more resilient and proactive system to help people stay well was to me an important thing. And I think if we help people stay well, that's the way, the best way to 
bend the cost curve to make quality care more accessible and affordable. And I think fundamentally, and this is a really important part of health assurance, is they also respect the people who deliver care. We always said it's important for us in the laboratories to develop new medicines, but we have to respect and join into partnership with the people who actually deliver care, that is physicians, nurses, places like Intermountain. And so the idea of partnership between those people who bring forward technical or technological innovation and those people who actually have the hands-on experience and the empathy to deliver care to people is something that I thought was important. I just love that, Ken. And I think we've both realized that we can't wait around for other people to solve these problems and that the government's not going to come in on a white horse and and wave a wand and make things all better. What I really appreciate that you and your partners at General Catalyst are doing is you're creating aligned incentives to do good in a way that also is economically sustainable. I think that's super exciting. And I think that's the only way we're going to get to a place where people can get care regardless of their ability to pay. And hopefully they're they're kept well to start with, so they need less care. I did my training here at Intermountain a long time ago in the 90s, first pediatrics and pediatric critical care. And I thought everywhere in the world, this is my naivete as a person in my 20s and 30s, cared for people without regard for their ability to pay. And sadly, that's not true. And it's why I came back here and it's why, like you, I want to drive this movement. And when we know that 30% of the care that's delivered is unnecessary or harmful, and there's plenty of money to go around if we just use it, I'll be really interested to see how we can use the market to actually create products that get upstream and, and do exactly what you're saying. So Mark, I don't want to interrupt, but you've been such a leader in this area. And I want to just give credit for how you've led Intermountain and how your colleagues have really showed some dedication to this, because obviously some of the things that you've done haven't necessarily created short-term profitability, but they're the right thing to do. And I think that gets to the essence of business leadership that's necessary in our society across all sectors of, of business now is, are we simply committed to doing what's easy versus what's difficult? Are we committed to doing what's profitable all the time? Are we committed to doing what's right by people? And I think you are a great exemplar of that. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just had to say that. If there's credit to be given, I think it's to our governance. Our board is really strong and they're brave and they want to do the right thing. My job is to run a really good business and have a bit of a vision. They've had my back during some very tough times as we've run into headwinds. So let's talk for a second about your background, Ken. And you grew up in Philly, I think, in the 60s. Yes. And you've had an extraordinary life. I'm sure you're going to say you're a lucky person, but the harder you work, the luckier you get. So I wonder if you might talk a little bit about how you were brought up and how it turned you into a change-oriented leader. I grew up in the inner city of Philadelphia in the 1960s, actually. We didn't use that terminology. I grew up in a neighborhood that was known as the ghetto back in the 1960s. But I had a couple of things that happened that were strokes of extraordinary fortune for me. I had extraordinary parents. I'm very unusual in that my father had a third grade education. My father's actually the son of a man who was born into slavery in South Carolina. My dad was born in 1900. I was born in 1954. So my dad was 54 years of age. It just so happens that his father was born in 1857. So the fact of the matter is my dad, who only had a third grade education, was a self-taught person. I always talk about my father because my mother died when I was very young had an extraordinary mother too, but she died when I was like 11 years old. And so I was raised by a single parent who had very high standards when it came to 
behavior where it came to education. But the other thing is that my younger sister and I came along in a birth order where we were actually bused across town to superior schools. I think the single most important thing that ever happened to me in my life, and I didn't really like it at the time, was that when I was in fourth grade, I was picked out to be put on buses to ride an hour and a half away from my house to arrive at a schoolhouse where the standards of education, the ambient standards were much more rigorous than they were in my neighborhood. And so one of the things that I've been very committed to, having had that extraordinary experience, is to make sure that as I travel around the business circuit, as I'm given access to the highest echelons of business and our society, that I remind people that for many people, those opportunities are just not there. It doesn't mean that they can't be successful, but it means it's much harder for them to be successful than it was for me because the quality of education is what changed my life. Do you remember being scared, Ken, when you got on that bus when you were a fourth grader and going to a different world an hour and a half away? Or were you excited? Or was it a combination thereof? I wasn't excited at all. I won't <laughs> exaggerate. I could still remember my mother was alive at the time when I first went to these schools. And I can remember some of the other mothers on the street really questioning her, why are you putting this young child? It would actually, you'd have to catch a bus, a subway, and another bus. Wow. And my mother was committed to us getting the best education possible. For me, I always felt like a stranger in a strange land. In the middle of the 1960s, we were just beginning chronologically, September 1963, when I first arrived at that schoolhouse, it was just maybe a month after the March on Washington, Dr. King's March on Washington. So our country was just at that time beginning to confront the inconsistencies between our stated doctrines of equality and what was really happening in the United States. And so it wasn't necessarily the friendliest place to go. This was uh, the Philadelphia schools were engaged at that time and something that was referred to as school desegregation, right? which is different from integration. It was the concept that the best schools shouldn't be simply all white, that there should be some Black representation, however minuscule that was. So it wasn't easy at the beginning. But I have to say that over time, when you get to know other kids, this idea of prejudice that we have in our society is something that's taught. Most kids don't have it inbred in them. So the other side of this was I was able to make friends. It was much harder for me then to come back to my neighborhood because then I was a stranger to them. I didn't go to school with my colleagues. Right. I didn't play with them in the streets afterward. And so that was a really difficult thing for me to come back. So I was a stranger on both sides of that transaction. So Ken, I've got two questions for you. One is you came up during the civil rights movement. Dr. King was active. People like John Lewis were active then. Do you think that ethos seeped into you? So that's the first question. And have you carried it with you, if it has? Without question, it did seep into me because it was the conversation every night at the dinner table in our family. And it was a period of time when there were two stories that dominated American discourse. One was the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. and the other one was the Civil Rights Movement. And as an African-American growing up in the country, this concept that maybe the country was thinking differently about opportunity for everyone was a big deal. And my father always enforced the idea that despite the fact that he wasn't able to go to school, remember, he, he was born in the year 1900. He only had three years of what passed for a public education for a black child in South Carolina at the turn of the century when separate but equal 
was in fact the law. I was born in 1954, a few months after Brown versus Board of Education, which struck down the concept of separate but equal in education in the United States Supreme Court. So my father always felt very strongly that those of us who came along were blessed with opportunity that he didn't have, and he was going to damn sure make sure we took advantage of it. So it did seep into my consciousness. My childhood hero was Thurgood Marshall, who brought those cases throughout the South to desegregate the South. And that's why, frankly, he was my role model when I decided to become a lawyer. Uh, I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer. I wanted to be the kind of lawyer that actually opened doors for people and created opportunities like the one that I described that I had because I was given that ride on the bus every day. It is still the case that with respect to public education, that frequently the quality of education depends on the ability of a parent or guardian to afford real estate that's proximate to where the good schools are. So for many children in our country, and I talked about school desegregation and the impact that it had on our on my life, but it's true throughout the country. It's people in West Virginia. It's not just an inner city issue. It's true throughout our country that opportunity, frankly, is not allocated equally across our country. And as a result, we don't take advantage of the human capital that we have in this country. So I couldn't agree more. So the rural-urban divide is a real issue, whether it's fiber or economics. And as you well know, the biggest social determinant of health, and you alluded to it, is the money in your pocket. Exactly. And the biggest determinant of the money in your pocket is how well-educated you are. Yes. And so what you just described is the root of changing the health of our country. So let me ask you for a second if you'd talk a little bit about your 110 initiative that you and Ginny Romady are leading together, and Intermountain's actually very proud to to be part of. Tie that to what you just talked about in terms of how you were raised and your commitment to education and advancement. So let me start by saying that my dad, who has always been 10 feet tall in my eyes, was a janitor for the United Parcel Service. One of the interesting things about our system was that in those days, someone like my dad, who had a very, you might argue, menial job like being a janitor, he was able to make a family-sustaining wage. He was able to raise his family, pay a mortgage, have a used car. We could even take once in a while a vacation to Wildwood, New Jersey Shore. We didn't feel poor. We knew that there were a lot of people in the world who had much more than us. We wore hand-me-down clothes, that kind of thing. But my father was able to, to take care of his family, and we lived a reasonably good life. That isn't necessarily true for people today who have the same kind of job that my father had back in the 1960s. The thing that I remember the most about growing up, one of the things I remember the most about it, I mentioned being bused across town to school. That meant that I had to get up earlier than my siblings who went to the neighborhood school because they could walk to school at the time the school bell rang. I had to get up and go across town. The significance of that was very early in the morning, I would have to get up and I would follow my dad into the bathroom. Our house was very small. It only had one bathroom. So usually when I went in to get washed up to go to school, I followed my father. And I tell people that the enduring memory I have of my childhood is the smell of my father's shaving cream every morning. And what that means is that I watch my dad get up every single morning without fail, spring, summer, fall, winter go down the stairs, go out of that house and go to work every single day and come back with his head held high because he could support his family. I happen to believe, and I think statistics show for children, the single most important determinant of their future is whether their mother or father have a job and whether that job pays a family sustaining wage. You asked about 110. 
In our country, something like 75% of African-Americans at age 26 don't have a four-year college degree. And at the same time, in many companies, 90 plus percent of all jobs require as a prerequisite a college degree, even if the job doesn't require anything that you learn with the four years. You, so often jobs are skill, skill-based jobs, but the credentials that are required exclude people. And it was unintentional. People don't do this because they want to be racist or they want to exclude people. It's just for many people, that four-year degree was an easy way to sift out people. So what 110 is about is it's encouraging companies to look carefully at the credentialing that they require, look at their job recs, and ask which jobs actually require a four-year degree and which jobs actually require a skill set, manufacturing jobs, IT jobs, retail jobs. And as we actually have gotten 64, 65 companies, including thankfully Intermountain in this coalition, last year, we were able to hire or promote 25,000 African-Americans into family-sustaining wages just because the companies were opening their doors to people who are trained to have the skill sets that are necessary. We think if we're able to hire 1 million African-Americans over 10 years, we will change the dynamics in our society. After the George Floyd murder, a lot of business people kept coming to me and, and Jenny and others and saying, what should business do to create more equity in our society? Should we f- focus on education? Should we focus on law enforcement? Should we focus on healthcare? We should focus on all of those things. But the thing that is in the wheelhouse of American business is to hire people. And if we open the doors of our own businesses to people who have the talent, who have the aptitude, who have the attitude to be successful employees, but don't have the four-year degree, we will do a lot. And I will say, incidentally, companies that have been committed to this for years like IBM will attest to the fact that these people are incredibly loyal to the company. And often they go on and get that four-year degree. Jenny likes to point out she hired people with high school degrees who now have PhDs in IBM. So what we're doing is we're providing opportunity. So I do think it's really interesting, Ken. I'd love to talk about your law career in, in just a second. Your partner, Ken Chanel, tells people he wanted to be a civil rights lawyer as well. And I think that's really interesting that the two of you ended up side by side. Maybe there's no accident there, Ken, but I think that's fabulous. You went through this incredibly powerful experience as a kid, and you went to Penn State and then you went to law school. Talk a little bit about how your career as a lawyer prepared you to be the CEO of, of Merck. And by the way, I've listened to you talk about drugs. You do a really good imitation of a scientist. When you talk about how pharmaceuticals work and mechanisms of action, I'm very impressed. So talk a little bit about how that whole continuum of your life evolved. When I went to college, as a freshman, I was a chemistry major. And so you know, when I went to high school, my focus was really on science and math. But I always knew that I wanted to be a lawyer. So I graduated from Harvard Law School, where I met Ken Chenault, by the way. He was two classes ahead of me at Harvard Law School. And I, you could tell even then that Ken was going to be something in the world. He was just different, okay, in a positive way. Mm-hmm. I went to practice law in my hometown of Philadelphia, and I chose purposefully to go to a law firm that had a reputation for doing civil rights cases. So I needed to pay back my student loans. So I wanted to go to a place where I could pay back my student loans, but I also could differentiate between those firms that were focused solely on business and those firms that represented businesses, 
but at the same time had a soul and wanted to do civil rights work. And so I joined one of those. And I did a lot of civil rights work throughout my career at the law firm. In fact, the thing that I sometimes think I'm most proud of is I did death penalty litigation throughout the South. And in one case in particular, I represented a client whose name was Bo Cochran. And Bo was two weeks away from his execution date in the electric chair in Alabama when I first represented him along with some other lawyers. And several years later, we were able to prove Bo's innocence. We were able to exonerate him for a crime that he was two weeks away from being executed upon because our system, frankly, produces too many false positives when it comes to the criminal justice system. It's a great system. It's the best system in the world. I have to interrupt you for a second. So whether you're in the Christian, Jewish, or Muslim tradition, there's a saying that goes something like, he who saves a life, it's as if he saved the whole world. That's a really powerful story you just told. I can imagine that's your one of your proudest, if not your proudest moment. Wow. Amazing. It is. This was back in the early 90s. I have to say, uh, my co-counsel went on to great fame. His name was Brian Stevenson. This gentleman who I represented, you talked about the, the religious ethos. One of the things that I learned from my client in this case was that Bo, who had been on death row for 19 years for a crime he didn't commit. Imagine what that's like. He said to me one time, when you're in the depths of that death row situation, you believe there can't be a God. Because how could there be a God if you were allowed to be in this situation for something you didn't do? But he became a person of faith. And after he was exonerated, after he was found not guilty, a lot of people descended upon him and tried to get him to file a lawsuit against the state of Alabama to blame people for his incarceration. But he wouldn't do that because he said, frankly, what he had learned was what it meant to be a person of faith. And the fact that there was no blame or recrimination on his part To me, I learned a lot about how we need to function in our society. And we have challenges around justice. But too often, instead of trying to find common ground for people, we actually want to blame people. And he refused to get into the blame game. So I do think what you said is correct. And that brought me to Merck. I spent about seven, eight years of my life to exonerate one person and save one life. You come to a company like Merck, as you know, from running Intermountain, through our actions, we can save many lives if we ensure that our companies are operating on the right principles. Talk a little bit about your view of the current controversy around the extent to which we should talk about some of the more difficult aspects of our past. People are quick to be canceled. People want to remember some things and forget others. How do you view the teaching of history with our ability to have a moral society going forward, Ken? This is a very big controversy in our society. It's become very divisive over things like critical race theory, which most people don't even understand what it is. It's used as a wedge issue. I think the issue around history is twofold. First of all, I think it's our obligation to teach history accurately, not to use history as a wedge issue on the left or the right. At the end of the day, this is really about, frankly, creating common ground and learning from our history. And so, The first point about history is I think it needs to be taught accurately and completely. I think the second point about these difficult conversations is we have to be able to have them in constructive ways. And I found as a CEO of Merck, one of the hardest things to do in a very divided society is to create a safe space for people to express their experience. You know, I talked about growing up as a black child in the inner city of Philadelphia. Nothing I said 
came down from Mount Sinai on a tablet with Moses. I'm just sharing my life experiences. And what I have to be able to do as a leader is listen to somebody who comes from a very different place in our society. That's why earlier on, I made, I took pains to say the challenges that I had around opportunity in the inner city, a kid growing up in West Virginia has exactly those challenges. A white child growing up in Appalachia struggles for having that opportunity also. So the other thing is, History has to become a basis for a common understanding and a common framework to attack today's problems. And the challenge we have around those difficult conversations is that they always start from a place of blame. And once you start from a place of blame, you can't really have an honest conversation because people retreat to their own corners and they become defensive. So that, to me, is the biggest challenge. I couldn't agree more. And at Intermountain, we take on issues around identity, inequity, et cetera. We actually try and put a clinical lens on it, Ken, mm-hmm. because it de-escalates some of these really hot feelings because it doesn't matter what party you vote for. You want your patients to do well. You want your members to get good care. And I, I will just add one thing to what you said. You can't get to know somebody, which is actually the key to respecting them, and then having a safe conversation in 140 characters. Yes. <laughs> and I think the tweet culture, the 24-hour news cycle is almost built for these grandstanding commentaries. I don't think it's an accident when somebody says, I have these strong views, but my best friend is Jewish, my best friend is black, my best friend is gay. And what it tells me is that actually, if you know people, you see their humanity, you don't see the color of their skin or where they go to church or who they fall in love with. And I do think that's a unique role that business can play in this era to try and serve as that space for safe conversations and personal growth and connection. So do I. If you think about our society today, most of us, not all of us, We live in neighborhoods and enclaves of people who are very much like us. We talked about the fact that our schools often are segregated by race, by class, by a number of issues like that. We can go to social media or more general media and hear the opinions of people who already agree with us. I think almost the last place in American society where we can't choose to live around and be associated with people who are like us is business. And so I think as leaders of business, we have to recognize that this is an important opportunity to create that understanding across lines. You know, we humans are tribal by nature. And so we have to look at the fact that at business, those lines around race and gender, around sexual orientation, around religion, around politics, we have to work with people across those lines. The question is, can we create an environment with true understanding and communication between people who see the world differently? I couldn't agree more. So Ken, you're famous on many fronts, but from your time at Merck and your decade at Merck as as CEO for not believing in top-down leadership, for actually cultivating engagement and ideas from all levels of your organization. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like? Yes. Being a lawyer in charge of a company that is populated by some of the greatest scientists in the world really taught me humility. And I understand that the scientific leadership of the company and the rank and file scientists and engineers and other are the thing that makes Merck successful. My job was to build a company of real substance. 
And that substance is composed of people who have the critical skill sets necessary to do what we are here to do in the world, which is to do great science and then to translate that science into medically important vaccines and medicines. I couldn't do that from behind the CEO desk. And so one of the things that I believed in and one of the things that I paid attention with respect to the people that I put into positions of responsibility at high levels of this company is this word we call empowerment. We talk about it a lot, but the core to that to me is that the pyramid that has the leadership at the top really has to be inverted because the person who's farthest from the customer at Merck is the CEO. The person who's farthest from the research bench at Merck is the CEO. The person who's farthest from the manufacturing interface at Merck is the CEO. So I wanted to make sure that I communicated to people my belief in their values and in their ability that they would make the right decisions. I often said when I went around and answered questions on stages around the company, people would ask me, Ken, what do you think about this issue? And I would never fall for that. I would say, if I answer that question, (laughs) then I'm implying that I know something that I don't know. You're an engineer and you're asking me an engineering question. So I won't even pretend to know the answer to that. (laughs) I often would say, if there was one thing that I hoped to accomplish at Merck, it was to make sure that Merck people had the confidence to make the decisions that they needed to make because they knew more about what they were asking than I could ever know. And I happen to think that's got to be much more important now, given what's happening, the disruption in the world, the uncertainty, the volatility of the world. We're going to need the quality and the the work of every one of our colleagues and not pretend that as leaders, we know what the right answer is. Because very often what we think the right answer is, is a product of our own experiential reference points, which have nothing to do with what's going on in the world today. So well said. Um In the early days of the pandemic, when we really didn't know what was going to hit us, I was rounding in one of the hospitals and I said, what are those guys doing? And it it turned out it was some of our engineering folks who were punching holes in the walls of our rooms and actually jury rigging negative pressure rooms. Ah. As many as we had, we didn't have enough. And then then the people who were walking me around, they got nervous, right? They're like, are we in trouble? On the contrary, right? Right. You see a need, you have the competence, go for it. You're unleashed. Get, Do whatever. And I actually felt like we were making real progress here when people had gotten away from this need to ask for permission and they just Agreed. went for it. And I, I just love what you said. That was a good day for me. As we wrap up, Ken, you're well known as a mentor and you have developed lots of executives over the years and lots of other people, I'm sure too. Any words of wisdom, you know, something that you share on a regular basis with people who want to have impact? Yeah. Could you share your thoughts and experience with us? I am the product of great mentoring. The only reason I'm the CEO of Merck is that a really great CEO named Roy Vagelos hired me out of the law firm and gave me a job here at Merck, but then did a bait and switch. As soon as I got here, he said, I don't want you to be a lawyer anymore. I want you to learn the business because (laughs) at the end of the day, you need to understand what this company does for people and people's health. And I remember at that time feeling, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to contribute in the only thing that I know. And But it was the best thing that ever happened to me. So in terms of the advice that I give to younger people in particular, The first thing I say to them is you got to be willing to take some risk in your career. you got to be willing to learn areas that you didn't know anything about and not feel bad because you start off 
at a deficit to what other people know. The second thing I say to people is a lot of people are afraid to actually take responsibility because they're afraid to fail. But failure is something that no one succeeds in life, really, unless they have some failures in their life. So if you're worried about failing, then you're going to define success in such a narrow way. And I think the last thing that I say that is people who want autonomy tend to grow in companies. If you believe in yourself enough to be willing to ask for a certain level of autonomy and responsibility, people figure that out and they give you more autonomy and responsibility over time. And that would be my advice. And and the last thing I would say, and it comes back to the things that we touched on before about the, the divisions in our society, is that a lot of what makes people advance inside organizations is the network effect, how much social capital they actually have. And for those of us who are in leadership positions, I think we've got to be mindful of the fact that we have to go outside of our comfort zone to embrace those people who are different and to mentor and to sponsor those people. Otherwise, these words we use about things like diversity, equity, and inclusion, that's just talk. It won't happen unless the leaders reach out and bring those presumptive outsiders into the inner circle. Uh, Ken, let's wrap it at that. I will say you're a person I admire greatly, and it's really been a privilege to speak with you and, and to listen to your experiences. I am really keen to see what you do at General Catalyst to take this to the next level. Because you alluded to it, the system is really broken. It's great if you need something that's transactional, something that's episodic. If you need a heart surgery, if you need your appendix out, some cancer care, which is highly transactional. But boy, if you've got basic chronic issues and then it's complicated by poverty or access problems, it's really tough. And I think you're putting the right team together, and I'm really eager to see what it's going to look like. Mark, I admire you and the work that you've done at Intermountain. You've done things that required courage, things that didn't necessarily result in short-term profit. And what General Catalyst intends to do is to bring together those innovators around things like software and technology, artificial intelligence, all of those things, with the people who deliver care. So at the end of the day, What General Catalyst does is it convenes and brings together the people who are actually going to solve the problems. We can't do it ourselves. We just look forward to being in partnership with people like Intermountain who will make the changes that have to happen. So thank you for having me today, and I look forward to working with you. Thanks, my friend. Keep well. I'm Mark Harrison, CEO of Intermountain Healthcare. Thanks for joining us today as we work together to build a healthier future. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app, then rate and leave a review. Your feedback will help us bring you better episodes each week. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.